Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey Spooksters, and welcome back to another Stabby Snippets here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my better pod half, Jessica. Hello! And today I'm going to be discussing the case of Tamla Horsford. She's known as Tam or Tammy. That's kind of what I'm going to refer to her as as we go along. If you aren't familiar with this case, she was a 40-year-old, fun-loving social mom, and she had lots of friends, and she was also described as a very loving wife. Her family in her obituary described her as full of life love. So on the morning of November 4th, 2018, Tam was found dead face down in the backyard of a friend whose birthday party she had been attending in Forsyth County or Cumming, Georgia. Now, some of you might have heard of this, but probably not a lot of you, sadly. It's now starting to get some traction on social media, so that's a great thing. But honestly, there's still so much left to fucking do with this case. And I just want to say thank you to Michelle for recommending this case when I was asking for suggestions in our Facebook group, because honestly, I personally had not heard very much about this prior. So I'm glad that this was brought to my attention and I'm able to share it with you guys. Now, if you are familiar with this case or you've read anything about it, you know that it left a lot of unanswered questions and there's a lot of concerns. So there is suspicion that this was a cover-up, that she was murdered as spoilers. It was ruled currently as an accident. It'll make more sense when I tell you, Jessica. Jessica doesn't know anything about this yet. Typically, like, if Tara's like, I'm doing this case, I don't research it because I want her to tell me and you guys get my honest reactions. Yes. There is also talk of there being some racial motivation behind the crime Tam was a woman of color, and at the said birthday party, she was there with 10 other attendees, and they were all white. We will get into that. I've spent hours and hours just sifting through stuff, watching stuff, just trying to get all the information I can. I'm glad she's getting her case is getting more traction now, but it's like some of the couple years older articles, they just started kind of recycling themselves. And that's just mm, it just makes you really mad and sad for the family all at the same time. I really hate that. I really hate when news outlets don't do anything deeper than like a copy paste from another news outlet. Mm hmm. But before I get like too ahead of myself, I do want to start with a bit of history on the area where the crime occurred. It'll absolutely be important to take note of as you listen and kind of want to make your own judgments on the case. So besides the fact I mentioned about Tammy being the only person of color at the party, there's more to it when people think that there's something as far as race playing into this. I'm not saying it does. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just here to bring you guys this background on these facts to kind of explain why it could be plausible besides the obvious that some people fucking suck. So this county is problematic, to say the least. If we go back about a little over 100 years to 1912, during this time, the white locals decided they wanted to, and did, force out all the residents who were people of color. 
They forced out about 10% of their population, which was 1,098 people. So almost 1,100 people. They had to leave their homes. They had to move. They went to other cities and counties surrounding the area. Also during this time, there was the murder of a girl named May Crow. She was a white female. These locals looked into it, including authorities, and basically they were only looking at and accusing African-American males. There was three men that all ended up dead because of this in a short period of time. Those men were Rob Edwards, Oscar Daniel, and Ernest Knox. In terms of Rob's death, it was said that, quote, thousands of people showed up to watch and joined in and fired bullets into his corpse, end quote. So that gives you a little taste. Then flash forward to over 70 years later to 1987, same county. There was a man named Chuck Blackburn, and he pretty much thought enough was enough. And he was a white male who lived there. And this made me giggle. I always like when there's like little light things that aren't probably meant to be light, but it kind of gives my brain a little bit of a breather for a sec. Anyway, they kept mentioning his job. He was a karate instructor. And I don't know why I thought that was funny. (laughs) I just did. Because you can't take that seriously. Like karate. I'm sorry. Okay. If you're a karate instructor, I don't mean to offend you, but it's like you either like own it and it's like really passionate. But typically, like the karate instructors are young, college age-ish. Also, I think what you're thinking and what comes to mind every time I hear karate, I automatically go Napoleon Dynamite. Oh my God, yes. Automatically go. (laughs) That is exactly. (laughs) Flag hammer pants or type thing. And that I think that's why I giggle because that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of that like machismo, like, do you want to get in shape like that? Not like people who teach kids like self-discipline and things like that. Yeah, like the stereotype. No, that's exactly what I think. Oh my God, that's so funny that you said that. Same brain, same brain. Right. And I hear your cricket. Fuck you, cricket. (laughs) Sorry, guys. If you can hear it, I don't know. I'll learn tomorrow. Anyway, he thought that anyone should be welcome there, not just white people. So, you know, good for him. He wanted to have a kind of a peaceful protest. He wanted to do a march that was called the Walk for Brotherhood. Well, the residents there in Forsyth County did not like this. They started sending him death threats and all kinds of horrible shit. Clarifying question. You said 1987? Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Oprah literally talked about this. Anyway, so... This, of course, scared him. It scared him so bad he ended up canceling the march he had planned to go along with Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. But there was another man who was a white male as well and also a karate instructor. (laughs) I don't know if they knew each other or if that was just coincidence. I like that it's a big (laughs) thing in this county is to be a karate instructor. I mean, it's the 80s. I don't know if that matters, but, you know. His name was Dean Carter, and essentially he was just kind of like, you know, let's keep, let's do this. Like, this needs to happen. Let's move forward. So he ended up getting the support of Atlanta City Councilman Hosea Williams. They ended up getting a total of 90 individuals, and they held this march on January 17th of 1987. They were, of course, met with approximately 400 locals who were not happy about this. Boo fucking who. And the large group of individuals definitely had mob mentality going on because they were like yelling racial slurs. They were said to be doing like some kind of Nazi stuff, you know, white supremacist shit, probably. Classy. And they were also holding signs that said things like, quote, racial purity in Forsyth County and sickle cell anemia, the great white hope. I'm over here just like the flying fuck. Oh, my God. Mm hmm. 
let me just add to your flying fuck, because it was noted that in this and then the next instance I'm going to talk about in the locals group is what I'm going to call it, the white people being assholes. There was members from the KKK there as well. So because, needless to say, it's easy to figure out the tensions grew and grew and the safety got lower and lower. So the march was cut short. But Councilman Williams promised they would be back, and they came back a week later. So on January 24th of 1987, their group was there to peacefully protest yet again, but their numbers were much, much larger. They had about 20,000 people there in attendance. That's amazing. That grew quick. That is amazing. It did. And if you go to the sources page, I have obviously some articles about this, and you can see the pictures. I also want to say this is like way pre-social media. The fact that one weekend it's like 90 people and then the next weekend it's 20,000 people. Damn. Can you imagine today? I know. But of course they were met with more locals because that's just what these assholes are doing. And they had about a thousand people, but they were definitely outnumbered. Ha ha. (laughs) That must have felt awkward. (laughs) Like, damn. (laughs) Right. But even to this day, it's noted that the amount of the population in Forsyth County is extremely low for people of color. It's about 3.7% of the population. And from what I was reading, because I also went down like the Reddit rabbit holes, that this is still not a very welcoming place for people of color. Well, like, if you really think about it, like I was born in 86. So this is within my lifetime. If you go along that, you have to think about it like this. My parents' generation is not being welcoming, like, in this county. They're teaching my generation to not be welcoming in this county. And then my generation has children, teaching them not to be welcoming in this county. Like, goddamn. It's like generational racism at its best, people. It's a whole fucking county. Literally. So, yeah, I just wanted to point this all out to you before we dived into Tam's case, because obviously this is going to give a little context on the background. And also it makes more, I feel like explaining that makes more sense or makes it more clear on why people may be going towards that direction, that that could be a possibility. Mm-hmm. But with that, we are going to go ahead and move back over to Tam now and her story. So, like I said, Tam was a loving mother and wife. She was said to be very dedicated to her family, and she always, always, always put them first. And she was just a really positive person to be around, and she made everyone feel welcome always. She had five sons and a stepdaughter. Her sons were heavily involved in sports, and she was very supportive of that. And she was also noted to be very involved in her community as well. Tam and her family weren't originally from Georgia. They had actually moved there from Florida, but had been there for about five years by the time of the crime. So it's kind of a guesstimate, but about like probably 2012 or so is when they moved to Georgia. Mm -hmm. And what I was reading was basically they moved there because her husband had like a job opportunity type of thing and the kids could go to better schools and things like that. Like I mentioned, she did have a stepdaughter, but she was an adult, so she remained in Florida. She was actually about to have a baby around the time of Tam's death. So obviously, she was probably just like settled down in her own life in Florida. Mm -hmm. So November 3rd, this is the evening of the party. The party was supposed to be for a birthday, like I said, for a woman named Jean. And it was her 45th birthday, and she had decided she wanted to stay in and celebrate with her friends versus, you know, going out. And it was said that the party plan was to watch the LSU versus Alabama game and have a PJ party, quote, some drinks and some appetizers and stuff like that and just kind of hang out. 
So all of the women invited were football moms. So basically, like, their kids played together. Mm -hmm. Now, there were a couple of men at this party, which grabs people's attention because it was supposed to just be like a girls' night in type of thing. One, there really wasn't much information about, and I'm not too surprised because also in current times, a lot of these people are getting death threats or have been getting death threats. So the media is not really, some media sources aren't using their name at all and others are only using their first names. But I know these people's last names, but I stick to first names per my norm, not to protect any potential murderers. Anyway, the other two that we do have information on, their names were Jose and Tom. Tom is the husband of one of the ladies that was there. And then Jose was Jean's boyfriend, the woman who owned the house and had the party. A much younger boyfriend, too. He was like 27 or 28 and she was 45. But, you know, do whatever you got to do. It's not my business. There is speculation that this was supposed to have been a swingers type of party, but Tam wasn't into it or didn't know at first. You can go on Reddit to rabbit hole that portion of things if you would like. Since it's super speculation, I ain't jumping too much into it, but it'll come up a little later. But there's only two dudes. There's three. But we only know this info about two of them. Three dudes. And like eight women. They were going to be busy. I mean, you know, whatever. So according to Jean's account, she said that the two men were supposed to originally go out, but then decided to watch the game downstairs in the basement and let the ladies, you know, have their party upstairs and leave them alone. Well, uh, according to her timeline, guests started arriving about 7 p.m. And then Tam came about 8 to 8. 30. The reason she was late was because, like I said, she was a devoted mom. She wanted to get her family all taken care of and situated for the evening and the next morning. She stayed and made dinner for them. She even made them like a breakfast casserole for the next morning. I know. So sweet. And she's like, you know what? It's worth missing out a little bit of the party because my kids and my honey are good. That's basically what it was. After she left, she went to the store to get Jean a present. She picked up a specific tequila that she really enjoyed herself. It was like a nice imported brand. It kind of slips my mind right now what it was called, but basically it was like the one tequila she liked personally. So she's like, oh, let me get this nice bottle for her, you know, as like a birthday gift. Mm -hmm. It was said that she was actually really excited about going since because she kept her family at such a high priority she didn't have much me time she did try to get her best friend michelle to go with her but basically michelle had came by earlier in the afternoon and was like you know visiting with her and stuff and when tam invited her she was like "Mm, that's not really my crowd like i'm good you have fun you know that type of thing and just didn't go And since it was a PJ party, she decided she was going to wear a cute gray or white onesie that had little dog. I was thinking it was white with like little dog prints and stuff on it. And I was like, oh, onesie. I know because we love onesies. (laughs) But later after the fact, within more recent times, photos and some videos would surface of like what was going on at the party, like people taking them and stuff on their phones and things like that. And it looked like Tam and everybody were having a good time. She was smiling. She was hugging on people, which was norm for her. She was very, like, loving and, you know, friendly and just having fun and hanging out. And then there were some pictures of them playing, like, Cards Against Humanity and just on the couch and things like that. And the couch picture, most of you might have seen. It's her and then it's all the other women and there's, like, a little blurb and stuff. I don't have it in front of me right now. But if you've seen anything about it, that's the picture you've probably seen. Interesting enough, though, it's also mentioned many times by everybody that was there that Tam was the only smoker and that she would go out on the deck and smoke cigarettes and weed. 
in that phrase, she was the only smoker. She was the only one who went out there. This keeps coming up. And it was like the phrasing they used. Everybody used the same. Nobody changed up how they use it. Like if you're talking about it, you might kind of change how you're doing it. But people like when they're analyzing all of this and them talking, if they did make a cover up story, this was like one of those milestones to say and blah, blah, blah type of thing, like rehearsed. Got it. It was very like mantra like. Yes, exactly. She's the only one who went outside. Yes, exactly. So yeah, pocket that. Uh, It was also said by partygoers that, quote, Tam was in a great mood. She was dancing and she was talking to everybody. She engaged with everybody. She's got that personality, end quote. And it's also noted that Tam talked about her family a lot. You know, she was like showing pictures at around like 10 p.m. that night. She had called her husband to like talk to him and the kids and people like said hi or whatever. And then at 1230 a.m., she FaceTimed her stepdaughter, who I mentioned earlier, and was talking about how excited she was about the grandbaby and things like that. So really, the question becomes, how does this woman end up dead from a happy mom sleepover? And also, please note, like, nobody in these videos and stuff is acting like trashed or drugged or anything at this point. So that's something to pocket here in a second when we get to the autopsy. Got it. Per their timelines, it's said that the party kind of started fizzling out at around 2 a.m. Some of them decided to go home and some decided to stay the night there because they had plenty of room and extra beds and things like that. There's another thing to note, too, as far as timestamps in the rest of this timeline. There's inconsistencies. But basically, from what I've gathered, it seems like the inconsistencies were due to this was a night that daylight savings time happened. Mm -hmm. So it'll say like one time and then it's like an hour earlier type of situation. So it's like a little confusing. But once you look at that, you're like, oh, okay. Anyways, something that honestly kind of upset me when I was reading about this was that a lot of the other people were saying that there was like a certain time at the night that Tam asked slash said one or the other, depending on who you hear it from, that she wanted to go home or was going to go home. And she essentially got told no, that she couldn't. And the group, try on one hand, the group tries to say that, oh, they just didn't want her drinking and driving. We wanted her to be safe, which, okay, that's a fair point. But the thing is, there's plenty of other options for transportation, especially now in this day and age. Like, you could have called an Uber. You could have called a Lyft. You could have called her husband. You could have called her other friend who didn't come. There was plenty of options for her to go home if she wanted to go home. It's true. And it sounds like they had the foresight to know that she was been drinking. So maybe one of them was sober, could have taken. Um, it sounds like the guys were doing their own thing. So like maybe one of them. Well, yeah. See, what's interesting with that was it's noted that like saying everyone was drinking liquor, everyone was drinking, da 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 da. And then like, I guess at halftime, the guys came up and they saw food was out. And then that's when they just decided to hang out with them. Got it. But yeah, they could have done plenty of things. And not only did they take her keys from her, which if they're going with the drunk driving thing, that makes sense, right? What doesn't make sense is they also took her phone. I don't know why you need to take that. Unless they didn't want, like, they just didn't want her to leave. So they were like, no, stay, like, don't drive. And she probably was like, well, then I'm going to call my husband. And then they probably snatched it. Yeah, you can give them that if you want. That's fine. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm just saying, like, what I'm trying to say is, like, I can understand if they were inebriated. Because, you know, you have to play both sides. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning this as the listeners are. So it's kind of like I'm thinking, like, maybe they, you know, they wanted her to stay, you know, because they were having a good time. And if they'd been drinking, maybe the logic of, like, taking her phone is... Like, it seems very childish, but when you're drinking, you're kind of childish, so. This is true. 
So now, since it's obviously past midnight, we are into the fourth, technically. Well, another person to mention is Jean's aunt, Madeline, and she lived there with her. Her room was actually in the basement, some article said. So I was like, okay, maybe that's where the guys were watching the game, or if they had like a big basement, they kind of did like a living room, bedroom type of situation. Who knows? But makes sense. Anyways, she said she ended up going to bed kind of early, and then the next morning, so here on the 4th, she said she got up at about 8.30 to 8.45 a.m., and she went down to make coffee and whatnot. Well, once she got to the kitchen, she saw Tam's body face down on the ground in the backyard, and she told authorities, quote, I was just staring out the window and saw those Dalmatian pajamas, so I didn't start the coffee. I got on my knees and said a prayer, and then I ran upstairs, end quote. And she ran upstairs to Jean's room where her and Jose were sleeping. So she like knocked on the door a couple times to wake them up. And now this is kind of like where the timing was off because in some of the early reports it said 7.30, but then they figured out it was actually 8.30, like the clocks weren't correct. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. To be objective, they were like, who actually checks the clocks in the house when they have their phone. And I'm like, but she literally woke them up and said someone's like laying face down in their yard. Why would they take the minute to grab their phones? They would just look at like an alarm clock or like their stove clock or, you know, whatever. I mean, playing devil's advocate, if someone woke me up and said someone's laying face down in my front yard, I don't know if I would process that if I just woke up. So if it's habit for me to reach over and grab my phone, which it is, like every morning I grab my phone. Yeah. I reach over and I grab my phone and I look at it. Yeah. I don't know. Cause that's like, that's how I am too. So it's like, I was, I kind of get it, but I don't because I use my phone as everything. I just don't get a good feeling about them. But just before 9 a.m., the 911 call is placed. I will say this is something you should listen to because it is a little odd. I'm going to send it to you real quick. Okay. Because I want you just to hear them. Oh, my God. So many things. So many fucking things about that recording. One, the first thing I want to say is he literally says, okay, I'm going to go check. Puts them on mute, which is clear because the line goes dead. It's very quiet. And then he says, oh, let me get my shoes on so that I can help them because she's down off the patio. Motherfucker was never down there. Because why wouldn't your shoes still be on? I mean, unless like you walked inside and you have a house where you take your shoes off. But even still, like that's not something you would audibly say, like, oh, I need to put my shoes on to meet this officer. If that's a habit, this is like, I don't have shoes on. I've never been down by her. And then, yeah, you hear the line where he says she's the only one who smokes. So she's the only one out there. Also, I'm curious that he would just share, and I'm assuming this is coming up, that he would share, like, my girlfriend has an alarm system, so we can know what time people are coming and going. Also, she has cameras on her back porch. He said that very definitively. We will be able to see the incident that happened. Like, he's very definitive. Like, we're going to be able to figure out how she fell off the porch. I need information, Tara. If you have it, please give it to me. So, like I said, please go listen to that, guys. One of the things that stood out to me with this at first, I'll get to the video and stuff in a minute, is just kind of also their demeanor. I mean, they're both pretty fucking calm for finding a dead body in their yard. I don't know how I would react, but I'm just saying they were eerily very calm. Granted, a half an hour has transpired from when 
auntie has said that she notified them that there was a dead body in the backyard. So maybe they have composed their asses. But possibly, possibly. He also says in the call that, you know, he's describing her body as stiff. And it's also noted that when she, the dispatcher is asking if she has a pulse or anything, he doesn't really do anything like that. Like he mutes it like Jessica mentioned. But it said he tried to bend her leg rather than check her pulse. I don't know why you're doing that, Jose, but okay. I mean, he sounds like a crackpot smart man. Yeah. I was just like, okay. He, like Jessica said, mentions that there's cameras and all this great stuff that they'll be able to see what happens. But um, wouldn't you know that this would not be asked for by authorities and it would magically get deleted about 20 days after the death. They left without it. They didn't take it. When you see the screenshots for the the doors, basically, it's just like a little bit before two. There's like the door opens and closes multiple times. It'll be on one of the sources pages. You can check the picture and everything. But it didn't seem like much really came out of that because it's like you can't tell how many people are going through the door. You just see it opening and closing a bunch of times. Right. That could be one person. That could be multiple people. Don't know. Right. It's literally a text. So that was not helpful. And then also, like, the dispatcher asks if she fell off the balcony or if she was possibly suicidal and things like that. And I don't know if we have any dispatchers and stuff. Some people were kind of coming after this lady for kind of like, it seemed like she might have been unintentionally guiding a little bit and that helped them establish their story. But it's like, unless you're a dispatcher or have worked in this, you can't say that. Like, if it's true, then yes, this lady should be, like, called out. But it sounds like to me she was just trying to kind of understand what was happening, I don't really see it as anything wrong. I don't either, because, for instance, if she was suicidal, that would have been documented. Also, he's like, I don't know. And I mean, I honestly don't know why he would be on the phone when he doesn't really know her. Right. Like, so he did. He didn't even know her name, like her full name and had to get it, I'm assuming, from Jean. But that's crazy. Like, I could understand someone being composed, but you would think that there would be some sort of give in their voice that they would be like, you need to hurry or that when the dispatcher is saying, like, have you checked for a pulse that there would have been a definitive answer? Like, yes, we checked for a pulse. No, she's not breathing. And also, like, I'm sorry, please let me know in a comment somewhere in the world. If you came upon a friend, not like I'm not saying like you were out walking your dog and just found a random dead body. Like, but if you were at your home and you went outside and your friend was lying down face down in the dirt, in the mud, whatever, you wouldn't roll her over. Like that is a huge red flag for me. Like the fact that he's like, she's stiff. I get that they're like, oh, don't disturb the body. But like, you want to see if they're alive. Right. Like what if this person was like not breathing, but was still warm or could have had CPR performed? Like Mm -hmm. you don't know what's going on. So also, according to them, it's like auntie says, hey, it's 830. And then a half an hour goes by and a little before nine, they call. You can't see my hands, people, but I'm making these like really like elaborate like what the fuck? Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So police did get there rather quickly. They arrived by 9.07 a.m. So, you know, that's kind of good. But that was pretty much the only good thing. So besides that, it is said that the cops called off any first responders. So no ambulance, no EMTs, no firefighters, no nothing. It was just them. They called them off, which is just It's weird. It's weird because in a lot of places, you still have to have a coroner or an ME come out to pronounce the person dead. That's weird. And I Googled it. You did. 
what a medical examiner's education and training. The path to become a medical examiner takes years of schooling. Following a four-year bachelor's degree, a medical examiner must earn a medical degree and take part in a five-year residency in anatomic, I'm going to say this word wrong, please don't hate me, and clinical pathology and do a one-year fellowship in forensic pathology. Yeah, so like a decade of training. Right. So it's like a cop's training. Let's Google that. To full-time, you have to complete 888 hours of an intensive course to satisfy the California Commission for a Peace Officer Standard. Um, it's Georgia, right? Yeah. You have to complete 408 course hours and take, and it takes 11 weeks to complete. So it's not even the same as California. It's like half. Yeah. But yeah, like very different training. So I don't know certain laws as far as that goes with certain states. Maybe Georgia's more lax versus other states. Who knows? If you know, feel free to let us know because we always love getting information. Truth. They also didn't pronounce her dead at the scene until 1047 and they got there at 907. So that was over an hour and a half. I don't understand what took so long. Definitely an hour and 40 minutes. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, I can't math right now. No, no, but that's a long, that's like most, that's like movies. Right. Like you could have watched a movie. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. But according to Detective Michael Christian, here's kind of what went down and what they noticed right away. He said, quote, Tamla was located in the backyard in a prone position. She was laying with her head away from the residence and her feet towards the residence. Her left arm was at approximately 40 degree angle from her body and her forearm and hand were bent further towards her head in approximately the 10 o'clock position. Her right arm was straight and by her side with the hand approximately six inches from the leg. Her legs were straight behind her with both feet pointing to the right. Tamla was clad in a one-piece pajama outfit consisting of a white fleece hooded outfit with dog paw prints on it and a set of ears affixed to the hood. Tamla's body was sketched and measured. Additionally, the height of the main level porch was noted as well as the height of the rail. With the permission of Deputy Coroner Bowen, Tamla was turned over. Most notable when Tamla was turned over was the fact that she had come to rest face down. Her head had not been canted to one side or the other. Tamla's right wrist was fractured or dislocated. There was a large bump where her wrist met her hand and was cut over the bump as if the bone had cut the skin from the inside. There was matching defects on both of Tamla's shins. These corresponded with a piece of metal landscape edging, which stood approximately one inch from the surrounding ground. Other than the broken wrist and cuts on her shin, no obvious signs of injury presented themselves. End quote. Most people who fall, they don't go face first. No. Their head turns. So there's that and there's more going to come to you to think about. Okay. So she was taken to the medical examiner for the, you know, the county for her autopsy on February 6th. So flash forward a bit. 2019, it would come out that her death was ruled an accident and consistent with the fall. The detective would say that there was no evidence or injury patterns to suggest assault or foul play. Apparently, detectives also originally tried to say she fell from the ground level, not the balcony. But then their story changed. And when you hear her injuries, which I'm going to go into right now, there's like no way she would have fell from ground level. Like <laughs> I put in my notes, bullshit with a lot of eyes. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we're going to talk about her findings of this autopsy because it is only the first one. We have more than one. Spoilers. So her blood alcohol levels, BAC, whatever, sorry, was 0.24. So like almost triple of what the legal limit is. There was also traces of THC and Xanax found in her system, but no other substances. And, quote, severe injuries to the, get ready for this because I got a long list, 
to the head, neck, and torso, several superficial abrasions to her forehead, left eyelid, bridge of her nose, right temple, and chin, a fractured second vertebrae, and dislocated wrist, and there was a laceration on the right ventricle of her heart. That last injury alone was said would have been fatal by itself. It's her fucking heart. (laughs) Yeah, that means she got stabbed in the heart. And also something to note, there was no photos done with this autopsy. What? Which, according to the lawyer of Tam's family, is not fucking protocol. So that is not a Georgia thing or anything like that. Oh, awesome. And because I already told you what this autopsy came to conclusion, it's no surprise that her case officially was closed on February 20th of 2019. It was said by the Forsyth, oh my God, and I feel like I'm saying it wrong, so if I am, sorry, County Sheriff Department that, quote, the injury sustained to Mrs. Horsford was deemed to be consistent with those received in a fall. No evidence or injury pattern indicative of assault or foul play were noted by the sheriff detectives or in the coroner's or state of Georgia medical examiner's reports. Exhaustive interviews with multiple witnesses, family, and neighborhood canvases were conducted by the sheriff detectives throughout this investigation. At conclusion, no evidence of criminal activity has been discovered in this investigation. Also to add, nothing in the hundreds of pages of interviews transcript we reviewed suggests anyone at the house that night had any grievance with Horsford, nor any discernible disagreement or disputes took place at the party. On the contrary, many of the partygoers were struck by her personality, which appeared to have been extraordinary, describing her as sweet and fun, super friendly, warm, and so on. Speaking to the police later, Horsford's husband gave this poignant description of her. She was the biggest heart on this planet. There's people all over the world right now that are mourning this young lady. And then that's the end of that quote. Obviously, her family was very understandably concerned by all of this and like, what the fuck? Because they also just got like a very kind of bat, not backhanded, but I don't know how else really to describe it, phone call that this was going to happen. Literally, I believe they said like an hour before the press conference to announce they were closing it. What? Yes. That's so fucked up. Mm hmm. So her family was like, you know what? Fuck this. We're going to go get a private autopsy and see what the fuck we can find kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And in that report, it said a good number of her injuries had evidence that they were actually done post-mortem to her. Oh, shit. Yeah. And all the the troublesome shit does not stop there. There was stuff going on in the middle of this. I wanted to kind of like talk about that first before I got to this part. So remember Jose, John's boyfriend? Mm -hmm. Well, he had a job at the Forsyth County Superior Court. He was a pretrial release service officer. While in this job, Jose got caught doing something he shouldn't have been. He was trying to access, secretly, Tam's police files. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Red flag. Red flag, if you haven't caught that. Yeah. This also makes sense why when the dispatcher, because it's a small county, right? Mm-hmm. When he said his name, the dispatcher wasn't like, oh, hey, but it, there seems some familiarity there, like name recognition. Right. Well, when this happened, he was put on administrative leave on December 17th, 2018, and he was terminated by the 20th based on a, quote, loss of confidence in the department. And then there was a statement by Major Joe Perkins, who was on, you know, at this department, and he said, quote, It was probably just curiosity, to be honest. He had access to our system, and he should not have done what he did. He accessed those reports, which, again, upset us. It violated our trust with him, and we reported it to his supervisors. 
I'm sorry. Any person who doesn't have something to hide, like, you can subpoena police reports. Like, you can... Not subpoena. That's not the word I want. What is that? Like the Freedom of Information Act. That's what I'm trying to say. The Freedom of Information Act. (laughs) If he was really that curious, there was legitimate ways... It's like, again, like, he's like, oh, no one's going to know that I did it. I'm assuming he had some sort of login. Mm-hmm. Like, he was going to be traced. <laughs> the fuck you doing? And especially since his name is in the file because he made the 911 call. Right. So to kind of bring us up to current day with that, Tam's family has, of course, been continuing to fight for justice for her and find out what actually happened, along with their lawyer, whose name is Ralph E. Fernandez. And he recently, which some of you guys might have seen in it, was really kind of like going everywhere on Twitter. The attorney wrote a letter to Tam's husband, and that'll be in the sources page if you want to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read it all, but I did pull a little snippet of that to read you guys. It says, quote, the review reflects that a homicide is a strong possibility. Witness statements are in conflict. A potential subject handled the body as well as evidence prior to law enforcement arrival. A remarkable fact is that there's no photographs taken during the autopsy. This had been done at someone's directive because such a practice is unheard of. It appears Tamlet was involved in a struggle. There was abrasions noted that I had talked about. There were parallel scratches to one arm. He also points out the stuff with Jose that I just talked about as well, that, you know, he is really close to the sheriff's office and then having been involved, you know, that whole mess. And basically he was just like... He feels like the truth was not put out their first go around, obviously. But with that, they actually are, as of very recently, I believe it was like last week or so in our time, they have officially reopened her case. So they are going to be doing a second look at that, which is great because obviously there's all kinds of fuckery going on here. Oh, good. They need like a third party. They need someone to come in and do an audit of that before, because if it's the same police department doing the same thing, it's going to be like a million other cases out there where they open it up and they go, oh, no foul play. We don't see any foul play. And then they close it. But if you have someone like the FBI or other even private, Mm -hmm. did I did I jump ahead? Yeah, you did. Bad Jessica. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. No, you're in the right direction, though, because Ron Freeman, who's a sheriff in Forsyth County, he had put in the request to have it reopened. And he actually requested the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to do the investigation for Tamla. So that's great. And as things happen and things go on, we will be keeping an eye on that to keep you guys in the loop on what's going on with Tamla. It's just it's so frustrating and so heartbreaking that for her family to find out what happened to her, they have to go through all of these hoops and everything. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's unacceptable. Um, I do have a question. Mm hmm. You said that the body had been handled by someone prior. Yeah, that was the quote in the lawyer's letter. I'm thinking because remember how I said it's noted Jose was like fucking with her leg trying to bend it and stuff. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm assuming it's that unless there's other stuff we don't know. The whole thing with the swinger thing to bring that back is there was saying how one of the men tried to like come on to her or something and she like rejected it and there was like a whole thing and maybe one of them did something to her or pushed her off or something. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that stick out to me is when they're talking about her falling, when they're saying her face didn't turn, like no one just splats 
face down. I think it's like an involuntary thing. Right. Like how they tell you, like, if you fall, don't put your hands out. But like, there's a reason why so many people break their wrists that way. Mm -hmm. You put your arm out to like catch yourself because it's involuntary. It's not something you were like thinking like as you're falling, like I should put my arms out. Like you have to have the wherewithal to be like, my arms are going out. Oh, no, I need to bring them back in because then I will break my wrist. And I think it's just something that like we do as in like a to brace for impact like we just like we turn Mm -hmm. and they said something about her wrist it looked like the bone had been out but it sounded like it wasn't out still so that kind of sounds like it broke and then someone like put her wrist right some sketchy shit man and i mean that would be weird like if the boat like you would think that they would say when they found her that the bone was protrude, like they would have to mention that the bone was protruding from the wrist, not that it looked as if at some point the bone broke the skin. Yeah, there's that. There's definitely some shady shit going on with this, for sure. I don't know who, I don't know how, but yeah, it's there. Right. And here's the thing, like, this is the thing I want people to understand. Accidents do happen. People get into fights, someone gets pushed, they fall down. Accidents have happened where that has led to people dying. But the appropriate thing to do is to call the police. Yes, you may end up with like involuntary manslaughter or something along those lines. But like there's a reason that there's those charges and you typically get lesser, especially if it's something very like, you know, you tap someone on the shoulder and they fell, you know, or something along those lines. Also, completely face down. And it's so weird that no one rolled her. Like, the fact that he'd fuck with her leg before he'd roll her over to see if she was breathing. And honestly, it's probably his way of saying, like, it touched her. So, like, if my fingerprints are on her, I was messing with her leg. Probably. Ugh. But, yeah, that is Tamla's case and where we are. And in my opinion, it definitely seems like a murder case. I'm sorry. It just does. Oh, for sure. You know, I don't think this was any accident. And, you know, the other thing that popped in my head, too, is like, if she was stiff, she's obviously been dead a while from when they found her slash left her and then called type of situation. So there's that as well. Mm -hmm. But we will we will wrap this up for now. So, yeah, we are going to wrap it up and I will keep an eye on things. And I appreciate Michelle and everybody who has posted updates about this in the group. Uh, Please continue to do so. That's always helpful because, you know, we can't always catch everything. And then it's nice for everyone in the community to see it as well. If you guys would like to check out the GoFundMe for her, it's on the sources page, too. And that obviously they talk about her when she was alive and things like that. So that's always nice to read. So you could check that out there too. But that is going to wrap us up here for today. Uh, We will catch you guys on Monday for our next regular episode. Bye. Bye.